Our sermon text this evening comes from John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and I will be reading verses 1 through 12. Hear now the reading of God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, as we see this manifestation of your son's power, I pray that you would Illuminate our hearts by your Holy Spirit to receive its teaching, that we would better understand you, that we would better understand Christ, that we would better understand the salvation that he has won for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, everyone likes a good wedding, I hope. There is the joining together of a couple in the Lord. There is the gathering of friends and family. It is one of the largest such gatherings that can happen in one's life. When Heidi and I got married six years ago, I I marveled at how unique of a gathering of people it was. I had family from near and far, friends from childhood, friends from college, friends from adulthood, all these people representing different stages and stations of life, maybe for the first and only time gathered together in one place, and it was a blessed time of rejoicing. But it did have its moments. In the weeks and months leading up to the wedding, there was a bit of stress. We made a rather significant error in scheduling our wedding. We got married over in Hill City in the Black Hills, and unknown to us, we scheduled our wedding during the second weekend of the Sturgis Rally. We didn't know that, we didn't plan that, but that's how it happened. 
And so rooms ended up being expensive and hard to get. We had to line up the food. Uh, my sister made our cake, and it was a very good cake, but for various reasons, shortages of supplies and other things, she ended up being most of being up most of the night before our wedding trying to finish the cake, and we weren't really sure until the time of if it was going to get done. It did. Uh, one of my groomsmen had to withdraw. He couldn't make it to the wedding. I had to come up with another groomsman. Some family members were holding grudges with other family members and so wouldn't come as long as the other family members were there. This is the business of weddings. But despite all of the craziness and stress of all these different pieces coming together, weddings are a time of joyful beginning. It is the start of a couple's new life together, the joining together of two families, and a beautiful picture of Christ's love for his church. Well, this week we turn in John to chapter 2, and we see where Jesus will perform his first recorded miracle, and it occurs at a wedding. Now, we do not know for sure whose wedding this is. That is beside the point. At this wedding in John 2, we will see a joyful beginning, We will see Jesus Christ, who ought to be the real star of any wedding among his people, begin to display the power and glory of God in supernatural and miraculous ways. So we will see this display tonight in three points. First, we will see that there is a failure in verses 1 through 5. Something has gone wrong at this wedding, as things at weddings often do. Something into which Jesus gets involved. Second, we see a fix in verses 6 through 10. What does Jesus do about this situation? And third and finally, we see faith. How do Jesus' disciples respond to what happens? How do they respond to these events in verses 11 and 12? So failure, fix, and faith. Those are our three points for this evening. First, we see a failure in verses 1 through 5. In verse 1, we see that there is a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, like Nazareth, which we looked at last week, Cana was another rural, small Galilean village. Not a very eventful or exciting place. It was the sort of place that if it were not for these events of this passage recorded for us in Scripture, we would have probably never heard of it at all. But this particular day, there was one event. There was this wedding of a nameless couple. We don't know who they are. There is a decent chance that this is someone in Jesus' family, because we do see that Jesus' mother, Mary, is there, as well as in verse 2, Jesus and his disciples. It must have been somebody they knew, somebody from around. Again, possibly a family member. Now, it is a bit curious that both Jesus and his disciples attend. The text does say that they were invited, but at this point, Jesus and his disciples, they have not been together very long. This wedding occurs, according to the text, on the third day, three days after the previous events of the calling of the disciples. Perhaps the difficulty that arises in a moment like this is, More guests showing up at the wedding than anticipated. 
Maybe if you've had a wedding, maybe there's people that you invited, but because of distance or scheduling or other factors, you didn't expect them to show, and then they did. And then you might have a problem, not enough food, or as we see here, not enough drink. Now, it is helpful to understand the nature of Jewish weddings in this time period. In our day, weddings and receptions are usually a few hours. And it may be a rehearsal gathering the night before. But in Jewish culture of this time, weddings typically went on for seven days, a full week. And the guests had to be kept happy and had to be kept supplied, had to be kept up in food and drink for a full week. But in verse 3 of our text, tragedy strikes. They run out of wine. Now, there is no substantial reason to think in this text that the wine that is described here is anything but wine as we understand it. The process for making wine was a little different back then. There was more dregs and fruit remnants and stuff left in it, but the net result was the same. It was wine. It would have had alcohol. It would have been made from grapes. Some advocates of temperance movements have tried to say that all the wine described here was merely juice, but they didn't make grape juice for the sake of grape juice in that day. There was no refrigeration. There was no storage for it. So any attempt at plain juice was going to end up as wine or vinegar eventually anyway. Now, to run out of wine during a wedding feast, it would have been shameful. It would have been disgraceful. It would have signaled to all your guests all your friends and family present that you were either poor or stingy or a poor planner if you didn't have enough food and drink at the feast. This is exasperated by the fact that in a small rural first century place like Cana, it wouldn't have been so easy to deal with this situation. There was no Dollar General or Walmart that you could run out too quickly and get some more wine. So whoever is hosting this wedding is in a bind. Mary seems to have some vested interest in the problem because she comes and tells Jesus about it. Again, this lends credibility to the idea that this wedding involves some of Jesus' family members, uh, someone who Mary would, would like to not see embarrassed in this way. Now, it is fascinating how Mary approaches Jesus with this problem. We don't know, and much unprofitable speculation has been made about what Jesus' pre-ministry life was like, what it was like when Jesus was growing up, but whatever it was, Mary would have known about it. And for whatever reason, she believes that Jesus can do something about this embarrassing problem. But Jesus responds with reluctance. He says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, some have taken his use of the word woman here to be a sign of annoyance, perhaps even disrespect. If we addressed someone as woman in our day and language, that would not be a very nice or polite thing. But actually, in the language and culture of that time, this was not the case. To address Mary as woman, it would have been proper. It would have been how one addressed a woman that he respected. But Jesus responds to Mary in a way that at first glance looks like he does not believe that this is his problem to solve. 
Now Jesus will act, and Jesus surely knows that he will act. But the point that is being made to Mary by this initial response is twofold. First, Jesus is making it clear that he is no longer merely living and acting as Mary's son. He is also her Lord and Savior. Christ has all authority on heaven and earth. It is not fitting for Mary to impose upon him and command him. But secondly, as a function of Jesus' divinity, his lordship, his coming with the intent to fulfill the Father's eternal decree, he is making it clear that he is acting according to the Father's plan and he will not take any action until the appointed time. Now, this is true of this relatively minor matter of this wine. But often throughout John, when Jesus uses this language of his hour having not yet come, he is talking about the hour of his suffering and death. Certain events come to pass a certain way at certain times, or Jesus takes certain actions to delay, for instance, his arrest, which will lead to his death. All things must happen at their predetermined time. Christ has come to complete a work given to him by the Father, and he must do all in its proper time. Now, another important, another important aspect to this exchange, and John Calvin is clear to point this out, is that it makes clear the role of Jesus in relation to Mary. This is important when we are dealing with and thinking about Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholics venerate Mary. They worship Mary. They go so far as to pray to Mary and to treat her as another mediator between God and man. Calvin recorded some of the titles that Rome used for Mary in his day. They called Mary the Queen of Heaven, the Hope, the Life, and the Salvation of the World. To ascribe such titles to Mary it is blasphemous. It is idolatrous. It robs from Christ what can and should only belong to him. Though Mary has a privileged position among women, she is a mere human, a sinner in need of grace. She, like us, looks to Christ as her Savior and Lord. She is an equal to us. She is not a Lord in her own right. And we see in verse 5 that this point is well taken. Mary is not offended as though Jesus' words are a statement of offense. She is not dejected as though Jesus will do nothing, but she is aware that Jesus will act on his own terms. And so she tells those attending to the feast to be ready, to wait for Jesus to do what he will do. She says, whatever he says to you, do it. Jesus will do something, and when he does, be ready. And this brings us... To our second point. After the failure at the wedding, this running out of wine, we come to Jesus' fix. We come to the solution for it in verses 6 through 10. Once Jesus has purposed that his time to act has come, we learn of these purification vessels, these jars in verse 6. You might remember a few weeks ago that when the priests and the Levites confronted John the Baptist, they were not so interested in his teachings, what he was saying. What really concerned them was his baptism, this washing ritual that they hadn't seen before that John was doing. 
Well, the existence and presence of these washing vessels in this feast show the great emphasis on washing rituals that first century Judaism had. Now we see that these are big vessels, 20 to 30 gallons each. Compare that to, say, a five-gallon bucket, which is usually one of the largest water vessels that any of us would fill and carry by hand. We're talking something four to six times larger than a five-gallon bucket and heavy, made out of stone. Now, why would these big water jugs, these big water vessels, be here? Now, it is true that there were some washing rituals prescribed in the ceremonial law of Moses. But it would not account for so many vessels that were so large. What had happened was that the Pharisees and the scribes and the other religious leaders of that time had added more washing rituals. They had imposed regulations of washing not prescribed by Scripture. To get a better look at this, I want you to turn with me quickly over to Mark chapter 7. And we'll learn a little more about these washings. I'll read for you these first eight verses. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw that some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like with the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do." Several pieces of information that are important here and help us to understand what's going on in John 2. In Mark 7, the Pharisees found fault with the disciples for not keeping their hand-washing rituals. But we learn an important detail in verse 3 of Mark 7. This washing of hands in a special way, it is not a scriptural requirement. It is a tradition of the elders. This follows a classic pattern of legalism. It's similar to what we talked about, for instance, when we were looking at the Colossian heresy in the book of Colossians. There were some washings that were prescribed in Scripture, and it seems that someone got the mindset of, well, if washings are good, more washings are better. So they added more rules, more laws, more regulations than even what Scripture required. In fact, it even went beyond the washing of hands. In Mark 7, 4, we see that they added to this the washing of all these dishes, cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and this one seems a little out of place, but couches. None of these things were biblically required. They were a tradition of man that was being imposed on God's people on top of what was actually required of them. And so in Mark, 
Jesus explicitly rebuked them for imposing these man-made traditions while neglecting God's word. So in John, back in John chapter 2, what we see here is an implicit rebuke, but of the same things. You can turn back there if you haven't. By selecting these washing vessels that were employed largely for these unbiblical and unnecessary rituals, Jesus is making a symbolic declaration of his authority. These rules and regulations and the instruments for them that have been a burden now become instruments of blessing. The false power of man and of his traditions has been undone by the true power of God. What has been used to make and declare sorrow and difficulty will now be used for celebration. So Jesus asks the servants in verse 7 to fill these pots with water, and they are filled to the brim as full as they can go. So six of these vessels, 20 to 30 gallons, we're talking anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Now Jesus doesn't perform any incantation or say anything to make the change. He just does it. It happens. He then tells the servants to take some of what is in the pots, now wine, to the master of the feast. What the master of the feast receives is not only wine, but very good wine. It is wine of the highest quality. Now, I do wonder, what would the master of the feast think if he knew that the wine had come from these ceremonial washing jugs? Verse 9 says he didn't know where it came from. It is a little interesting if these vessels were used to wash all these things. Would it be a strange thing to be drinking out of? But that is beside the point. What is clear in the eyes and on the tongues of everyone at this wedding that this is the best wine that they have had yet. It is so good that when the groom tries it, he's taken aback by how much better it was than the wine they had already had. And there is lots of it. Again, 120 to 180 gallons. Richard Phillips, he comments on this text. He says there's so much wine, it was probably more than they even needed for the feast. Maybe even enough for these newlyweds to sell some and get some money to start their life together. We don't know that for sure, but it is possible with such a great quantity. What is important, what is significant here, is that Jesus gives the most and the best. From these washing vessels that were a constant reminder of impurity and uncleanness and death, Jesus brings that which is alive that which is joyful. Now it should not also be lost on us that wine is later the symbol, the sign and the seal that Christ will institute of his own blood. In Christ, the dead becomes alive, the dirty becomes clean, the burdensome becomes joyful. The traditions of man are broken and dashed. They are useless. They can do nothing. Christ washes them away in his blood, and he declares for his people liberty and freedom. But in light of this, this great miracle, this making of not only wine, but so much wine, and in doing so, declaring his authority over the traditions of man, how do Jesus' disciples respond? This brings us to our final point. 
after the failure and the fix at this wedding, we now see faith in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, we see that John adds a postscript to these events. This was the beginning of the signs that Jesus did at this wedding in Cana of Galilee. It is the first miracle that John records, though it is unique to John and not recorded in the other Gospels. Given John's eyewitness status, it is fairly safe to say that this was probably Jesus' first public miracle altogether. But what is it for? We've already seen the symbolism associated with Jesus' choice of these water vessels, and that he's come to overthrow the man-made traditions prevalent in Israel, and to use wine here with this connection to Christ's blood, his suffering, and his death. But in verse 11, John peels back the curtain and gives us a larger and more ultimate picture of why Jesus has done this. We see two critical points here. First, Jesus did this miracle to manifest his glory. Did he do this because the friend or family member whose wedding he attended needed more wine? I mean, that was part of it, but it wasn't just about that. Wine can be acquired elsewhere for a price, but Jesus makes wine in the way that no one else could. He does it miraculously, supernaturally, in a way that can only come from the power of God. Wine normally takes months to make. It takes a very delicate process. Jesus just wills water into wine. He doesn't even say it. He doesn't even have to. It just happens at his willing. Jesus, in doing this, is demonstrating what John began this book with back in chapter 1, that Jesus is the revelation of God, that he is the manifestation of his glory, this triune glory. For he has been sent by the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to carry out the plan of redemption. These miracles, these signs along the way, point us to this glorious reality. But second... We also see that this sign produces in Jesus' disciples a response of faith. We see that at the end of verse 12 that they believe in him. They have seen the glory and power of God manifested in their sight. For them, this is about more than wine or washings. This is about God in their midst. They see what Jesus has done, and they believe him. And they follow him, and they trust him. Now, not everyone will have the same response. We see that after this miracle, Jesus departs with his disciples, but also with his family. We discover later that Jesus' family is not so enthusiastic about Jesus' ministry. Once he starts teaching publicly, drawing negative attention from the scribes and the Pharisees and authorities, his family shows up at one point to try to take him home to try to stop him, to try to shut him down. Though they have been present, though they have witnessed this miracle, they do not yet believe. We see a response of faith here from the disciples, but also a response of unbelief from Jesus' family. Now later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, some of his family will believe in him. For instance, the New Testament letters of James and Jude are written by men who were likely other sons of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' brothers, who would come to faith and service in the church. 
So all of this to say, there is two possible responses to seeing the power and glory of Christ on display in a way such as this, in a way that is recorded in the Word for us. And which are you this evening? How do you respond to this glory of God revealed in Christ? Are you trying to save yourself by your obedience, by man-made tradition? It might not be washing rituals or anything like that, but is it by your works that you are trying to be saved? By your own righteousness, by doing what is perceived to be good, doing what you think are good things. Your works are just as good, just as useful as these needless stone jars. They can't deliver on what they promise. They cannot bring true spiritual washing and life. Your works will never be good enough to save you. Your traditions will not save you. Even if you have been in church your whole life and you know all the songs and you know lots of Scripture, it means nothing apart from faith. Apart from faith, you remain dead in your sins. But there is the other response. Another way is put before you tonight, which is the way of faith. The way that looks upon Jesus in His glory as revealed in this Word which we have heard tonight. The Jesus who brings true cleansing of sins by His perfect life and atoning death, the shedding of His own blood. Will you be numbered like these disciples who believe Him, who follow Him, who love Him, who serve Him? Will you be like Jesus' family? Go back home tonight having seen the true food and true drink and true life that is in Christ set before you and go away empty-handed. May we all come to Christ. May we all remain in and trust in Christ for all our lives. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we have heard. We thank you for the glory of Christ that is revealed in it. We thank you that he has saved us, that we have this great salvation by his blood, salvation from the wrath and curse due to us for sin, liberty and freedom from the traditions of man, and from any vain attempts to save ourselves by our own works. I pray that this gospel truth would permeate our hearts, that all would believe and that we would all love you and honor you and serve you in gratitude for these great things that you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.